0: Please turn with me to James chapter 2 and verse 14. You may have noticed we had a little shorter worship set this morning. I'm I'm getting going a little bit earlier on the sermon. Uh, Some Sundays I'll finish the sermon and folks will walk up and say, man, you know, you were just getting going. I wish you had a little more time to address that passage of scripture. Other times folks will come up and say, you know, you went a little too long. Of course, I ignore that kind of feedback. Um, We're taking a little extra time this morning. Because we're dealing with James chapter 2. And I have noticed in over 20 something years of teaching the word that there are certain patterns, there are certain issues or topics that keep coming up, certain passages of scripture that I, I'm always asked, what do you do with that? James chapter 2, 14 through 26 is one that comes up over and over and over again. How do you, how do you deal with James 2 and his perspective and Paul? How do you put the two together? So we're going to spend a little extra time this morning, and then after the 11 o'clock service, we're going to do a question-answer and answer time. So uh, if you walked straight back into that room back there, it's called the fireside room beyond the hallway in the glass. Uh, we'll be meeting there if you want to run out grab some lunch, um, or we can serve you water and granola. <laughs> we we'll have get a couple of granola bars extra and uh, take care of you so you don't fade out. But after the 11, 11 o'clock service, any issues that come up during the service uh, you want to know about, uh, we'll have 3 by 5 cards. You can also send it to my Twitter account. I'll give you that at the end of the service, all right? So, James chapter 2. Let's begin by reading verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? James' question is actually pretty clear. He is asking, can faith alone without works, that kind of faith, a faith that doesn't have works Coupled with it, can it save? Question's very clear. Can faith alone save? His answer is also very clear. His answer is no. Faith alone cannot save. Comes out extremely clear in the Greek text. Not quite as clear in your English, but the answer is clear. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? Or in other words, he says, that kind of faith cannot save him. Can it? The answer is very clear. It's no. I hope that bothers you. I hope that makes you feel a bit uncomfortable. Because week after week after week, we're talking about faith alone, aren't we? Not surprisingly, James chapter 2 gave Martin Luther a lot of fits. Uh, He really felt uncomfortable with this. Remember, the battle cry of the Reformation, Protestant Reformation, was sola fide. Faith alone, Uh, grace alone, faith alone, Scripture alone as the authority. So Luther was quite uncomfortable when he read the book of James, because the book of Romans is what had moved him away from faith and works toward faith alone and Christ alone. He wrote, in comparison with these, that is Paul's letters and Peter's letters, the epistle of James is an epistle full of straw. That's his emphasis. It contradicts Paul by teaching justification by works. Uh, he preferred Peter. He really liked Paul. He put up with James. He just couldn't put him, make himself put it out of the canon of Scripture, so he just put up with it and said, well, it's, it's, a, it's a lesser book. It's a lesser book. So, we have two books of the Bible. Are they in genuine contradiction with one another? I find that troublesome. Where is it possible to reconcile James and Paul? Romans chapter 3, we studied last year. Paul wrote, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Pretty clear, right? We spent a whole year studying that. I didn't have anybody say, hey, could you go longer on that? (laughs) That was enough one year, Book of Romans, right? He also says, Romans chapter 4, verse 5, But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his faith alone is credited as righteousness. That's one of my favorite verses to use when I'm sharing the gospel and I'm trying to emphasize the point That eternal life is an absolutely free gift. I quote Romans chapter 4. But to the one who does not work but believes. Faith is credited as righteousness. But James says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What do we do with that? Historically, there had been four ways to reconcile James and Paul. Or four ways to reconcile faith and works. The Roman Catholic Church said... Works are required to merit eternal life. In the Protestant Reformation, they kept saying sola fide, only faith, only faith. Roman Catholic Church responded, if you give it away as a free gift, people will abuse the grace of God. No, you can't do that. It is earned. We believe in Christ, he died for sin. But then we must continue to do good works so that we can earn the grace that Christ has purchased for us. And we earn that by our good works, we earn that through the sacraments, we earn that through participating in mass, through a penance, through confession, that's how we earn the grace of God. And so by the end of our lives, probably all of our penalty for sin will not be burned off, even as believers in Jesus Christ we will go into purgatory and have the rest of our sins paid for through our own punishment. Works and faith are both required. Protestants responded to what they felt like was a misunderstanding of their position, and they said, well, no, works are required to prove eternal life. Eternal life is a free gift, you receive it by faith alone, but as they used to say, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. Got that? We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. Embedded in that faith that saves is good works, and if you don't produce good works, you just prove that you weren't saved to begin with. So the works come in on the back end, not on the front end. But they are still required for eternal life. And someday you'll stand before God and you'll be judged. And if you don't have those good works, you just prove that you were not in fact elect and you don't have eternal life. The Arminian response was this. Works are required to keep eternal life. It's a free gift. But you must continue to grow in the grace of God so that you don't fall away and lose what you once had. Let me illustrate these positions for you. Council of Trent, Canon 14. This is the Roman Catholic position. If anyone saith by this faith alone, absolution, that is washing, cleansing, removal of sin, and justification are effected, let him be accursed. Okay? If someone says it's faith alone, let him be accursed. Now, all of your Roman Catholic friends won't necessarily agree with this. American Roman Catholics are notoriously independent. They they feel the freedom to disagree with the Pope on a wide variety of things. So this isn't necessarily what all of your Roman Catholic friends would believe. This is, however, official church doctrine. You are justified by faith and works in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, I pulled this off of the United Methodist Church website yesterday. Uh, United Methodist Pentecostals are are pretty typical illustrations of an Arminian position says, our church teaches that we can end up losing the salvation God has begun in us. And the consequence of this is, in the age to come, is our eternal destruction in hell. That is, we are not once and for all saved and eternally secure. But we can forfeit the salvation that God has begun for us. It's a pretty typical Arminian statement. Now... From a more reformed or Calvinistic position, some of you are probably familiar with Francis Chan. He wrote a book called Erasing Hell. A good book, except for a few statements. Here he says, put your faith in him, accept the incredible gift of the cross, where Jesus took upon himself the punishment we deserve and gives to us the life, healing, and redemption that come only through grace. I like that. That's a pretty clear statement, isn't it? But he goes on, he says, put simply, failing to help the poor could damn you to hell. Accept the incredible gift of the cross, but you better help the poor or you might go to hell. And you're not really going to know, have you helped enough until the very end. Now, I I appreciate Francis Chan a lot. I've I've enjoyed reading his books, but Francis Chan is pretty typical where you'll get an excellent book and you'll see a chapter or two or a statement or two that just kind of unravels the whole thing. Typically, the Reformed and Calvinistic folks don't reconcile these. They just speak out of both sides of their mouth. I think there's a fourth alternative. In my opinion, uh, these three all cloud the clarity of the gospel. They muddy the clarity of the gospel that we are given as a gift the full and final payment and removal of our sins forever by the death of Christ. And because he has removed that debt, he can reconcile us to himself, and he can give us life that is forever, and he can give it to us securely because of God's faithfulness, not ours. That's the gospel, and I think this clouds it. A fourth position is what's often labeled free grace. This is the position that I hold. It's the position of this church. Uh, It's one of the reasons we have the the word grace in the name of our church. It is this. Works are required for the justified to become sanctified. We are called to grow in the grace of God, but our justification is secure. It happened at a moment in time. We were declared righteous, put in right relationship with God, but we will not grow in that grace apart from good works. I think that's what James is talking about here. I think James has written two Christians and four Christians, not to make them fear that they're going to lose eternal life, not to make them fear that they never had eternal life, not to make them think that they've got to earn eternal life, but to remind them because you possess eternal life, You should do good works. That's natural and that's normal. So, let's unpack this a little bit more. Read with me again, chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? James is clearly saying faith alone cannot save. Well, what do we do with that? I think the confusion results from a variety of things. The first and most fundamental is that we try to read James in the context of Paul. Okay, we need to see James in the context of James. Second issue is there are at least five words in this paragraph that we assume we know what James is saying, but we're not seeing it in the context. Okay, faith, save, death, judgment, and justify. Okay, and we'll try to dig through all of those words here in the time that we have. The first is faith. What's the meaning of faith? Okay. Faith alone cannot save, but what does James mean when he talks about faith? Words only mean something when they're used in context. right? Otherwise, they're just scribble marks. They're symbols. We understand what someone is talking about based upon the words that they use around that or the tone of their voice or the setting in which we're speaking. If I say to you the word trunk, there are all kinds of connotations that may come into your mind. You might think the trunk of a car, you might think of a box that you put stuff in. You might think of a trunk of an elephant, which my wife le- added last night. She said, I might think of the junk in my trunk. Yep. All right. I can think of a lot of different things when I say the word trunk. Well, it's the same with biblical words. And sometimes we've seen them so often, we've read them so frequently, that we import meaning into the word that's not there in the context. So, what does faith mean? It means a variety of things. Faith can refer to content, okay? the, the data of scripture, the data of the gospel, the information. Jesus Christ died, he was buried, he rose from the dead, and he was seen by witnesses. That's content of the gospel. Sometimes faith, if you're reading a New Testament book, can refer to content. Uh, Faith is also an event, it's a moment. Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Uh, It's an imperative, it's a command. What do we need to do to be saved? What, what you need to do to be saved is believe. Okay, it's an imperative. It's a command. And that means you can obey. Obey this. And the moment that they believed, the debt was removed and they received eternal life. That happens in a, a moment of time. You may be a Christian this morning, but you don't remember that moment in time. You may remember vaguely, I, you know, one day I just woke up and, and I knew, I knew I believed. Or maybe you remember walking down an aisle. Maybe you remember going to camp and you prayed a prayer. But walking the aisle, praying the prayer, is not what saved you. God saved you through faith. In a moment of time, when, when did that happen? Well, you may not know experientially. But there was a moment when you crossed from disbelief to belief. From rejecting God to believing that Jesus died for your sins. And when that happened, you were declared righteous in the sight of God you were put into right relationship your debt was removed and you received eternal life that is the event of faith but faith is also a process and this is critical to understand there's a moment in which we believe but then we begin to grow in that faith or we should grow in that faith read with me James chapter 1 verse 2 Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, what's he talking about? Is he talking about the content of their faith? No. There's a shared content of faith that James has with these these Jewish believers. They're Jews. He's a Jew. And they have this rich biblical heritage. James doesn't have a New Testament yet. He's the first writer. They have this shared content of faith. Jesus Christ has come. He's died. He's been buried. He's risen. And they share content. James isn't talking about content. James isn't talking about the moment that they believed. He's not talking about the event. James is talking about the process of faith growing and maturing. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing, God tests your faith to grow your faith. He tests your faith to grow your faith. Context is everything. James is writing to Jewish Christians. They have a shared background. A shared theology. Consequently, James doesn't pack a lot of theology in. He just assumes a lot of theology. He assumes a lot of biblical knowledge and biblical history that they know about. James assumes that they're believers. Fifteen times in this book. Five chapters. Fifteen times he calls them brethren. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren... Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. You are brethren, you have faith, but don't hold it with favoritism. Don't try to live out your faith and still play favorites between the rich and the poor. If James had assumed that they were not believers, you would expect that in the book you would hear the gospel. Right? There's not a word in the book of James about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you must believe on him in order to receive forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. It's nowhere. Why? Because James assumes that they are, in fact, believers. But they're believers who are struggling. They're believers who are being tested and tried and tempted. They are struggling with poverty. They have physical need. And in their lack They are tempted to believe that God doesn't care any longer. God is not good. They're tempted to doubt the character of God. And in this testing and trying, even being persecuted, they begin to show favorites. A rich man comes in and they can get something out of him. So they treat him well and the poor they put at their footstool. They're being tested and tried. They don't have much. And so it creates tension. And someone else poor comes in and they don't serve that person's needs. Instead they fight and they quarrel and they have conflict with one another. Why? They do not have they don't have because they don't ask. When they ask, they ask with the wrong motives. They're struggling, they're tempted, they're tried, and you know what? They're not always succeeding. James is writing to genuine believers who need to mature in their faith. Now read with me again, chapter two, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? second word we have to deal with is save what does James mean by save or salvation the word save simply means deliver or rescue deliver or rescue in the Bible you see it used in three different basic settings there is salvation past I have been delivered typically I have been delivered from the penalty of my sin once and for all It's often spoken in the past tense, passive voice. By grace you have been saved through faith. I have been saved. Salvation is also future. I will be delivered. I will be delivered from the wrath of God to come. When he judges the world, I escape because I'm a believer in Christ. I will be delivered from that and I will be delivered into God's glory. That's salvation future. But then there's also salvation present. Right now I am being delivered from a whole bunch of stuff. You look in the Old Testament, David wrote a lot about being delivered from his enemies. God, save me. Not save me from the penalty of my sin. Save me, God, because someone's trying to throw a spear at me. Rescue me, deliver me. Save me from my enemies. Save me from my adversaries. Save me from death. We are saved right now from temptation and the power of sin through God's spirit. Salvation often refers to being saved from sickness or illness or even death. James used the word salvation five times. Five times. And every time he's using it with basically the same connotation. Let me illustrate. Chapter 5, verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will restore, literally, save. Write save in the margin next to James 5.15. The prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. What is this person being saved from? Penalty of sin? No, he's sick. And why is this person sick? In the context, he is sick because he has sinned. Sometimes God disciplines his children with sickness. This one needs to be saved from the consequence of unconfessed sin, which in this setting is sickness. Save this person from sickness. Raise him up. 520, he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. Salvation from the penalty of sin that we normally think of? No, this is the context. There's one who is sick as a consequence of unconfessed sin. That person needs to confess the sin. Be prayed on and anointed with oil. Others need to go to such a person and turn that person from sin because if you turn a person from sin, they stop sinning. That's what that means. Turn them from sin. When they stop sinning, more sins don't occur. That is, you cover a multitude of sins and that saves the person's soul from death. That's an Old Testament phrase well established. It means it rescues that person from the negative consequences of sin in this life. Sin has consequences for believers and non-believers Stupid decisions get bad results. It happens to everybody. To save the soul from death means to rescue ourselves from the negative, bad consequences of sin in this life. Which might eventually even be death itself. It might be death. Let me illustrate from the Old Testament. We talked about this earlier, but I want to drive the point home. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 17 The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his way preserves his life. Literally, he who watches his way saves his soul. Proverbs nineteen. He who keeps the commandments keeps his soul, but he who is careless of his ways will die. He who keeps the commandments saves his soul, but he who is careless of his ways will die. Remember we talked about this the avenue of foolish decisions, their consequences, we walk down it. And there are bad things that happen. All along the way. And at the end of that avenue is a cul-de-sac. And the end of the cul-de-sac is labeled death. Sometimes a person's life ends prematurely because of the foolish decisions that they make. That's what James is talking about. A few cross-references for you. He's saying there are consequences for sin. This is important. Because James is arguing that our lives as Christians will be evaluated. We need to be rescued from foolish decisions. We need to have our soul saved or our life saved so that it is useful and a blessing to others and honoring to God. Why? Because there are consequences in this life and our lives will be evaluated in the end. This is our third word, judgment. I want you to read with me James chapter 2, verse 12. James says, so speak and so act as those are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. We hear the word judgment, we think what? Hell. Right? That's immediately where our minds go. We see fire. We think hell. Okay. But these are just images. Right? And there's a judgment for believers, but there's also a judgment for non-believers. The judgment for non-believers is called the Great White Throne Judgment. It shows up in Revelation chapter 20. Only people who have disbelieved in Jesus Christ land at the Great White Throne Judgment. Believers aren't there. If your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, it's there and it's there forever. It can by no means be blotted out, ever. If it's not written there, after death, it can't be rewritten into there. You will be in front of the Great White Throne Judgment. And it says, A book is open. It's the book of life, Lamb's book of life. Your name's in it or it's not. But then there are books that are open and the dead are judged from the things in the books. What's in the books? Your works. Okay? The non believer's works. Non believer is judged based upon works at the Great White Throne Judgment. There are degrees of punishment. At the great white throne judgment. We often don't think about that. But remember Jesus' words. He goes to Chorazin and Bethsaida. He he reveals himself. He does miracles. They don't repent. And he says, woe to you. Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Because if the miracles that I have performed in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. Consequently, it's going to be more tolerable for them than for you in the day of judgment. There are degrees of punishment. That's the great white throne judgment. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't go there. But you do go to the judgment seat of Christ. Your life will be evaluated as a believer. I want you to turn with me in First Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is, built up, is building upon it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Did, did Did you catch that? The foundation is Christ. It's the foundation of your life. It's the foundation of this church. And you build on it with the choices that you make, the, the, the works that you do. And you are going to build with gold, silver, precious stones, or you will build with wood, hay, and straw. And one day you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As a believer, your life will be evaluated. And if it's wood, hay, and straw, it goes up in smoke. But you yourself will be saved, yet so is through fire. That is, you smell like smoke, but there you are. Okay. <laughs> Your life as a Christian will be evaluated. And if it's gold and silver and precious stones, you stand before Jesus Christ. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what James is talking about. He's talking to Christians, my brethren, 15 times. My brethren, your lives will be evaluated based upon your works. James 2 ends with judgment. James 3 starts with judgment. James 2, 14 through 26. Guess what it's about? Judgment. The evaluation of the believer's life. That's what it's about. So in other words, and don't, don't even try to write all this down, right? I'll I'll post the slides. uh, I'll email you the slides. I'll I'll take care of that. So don't even try on this next slide to write it down. I'm going to give you what I think is the argument of James. I'm going to say it three different ways. Okay. First, he's saying faith alone or immature faith without works cannot save you from a useless life and a merciless judgment. Said a more positive way. Mature faith expressed through good works is necessary for salvation from a useless life and a merciless judgment. I'll give you one more. Faith and works are inseparable for salvation from a useless life and a merciless judgment for the eternally secure Christian. James' argument is faith and works cannot be separated and you still be saved from a useless life, now, of no benefit to others, and not honoring to God, and then standing before God at the judgment and having him say, not so well done. Not so well done. Okay? That's the argument. You know, here's the rhetorical structure. James has just one argument. He states that argument five times. Okay? Same argument stated five times. Faith separated from works, first, can't save. Okay? That's his first statement. Faith separated from works can't save. Faith separated from works is dead. Faith separated from works is useless. Faith separated from works can't justify. And faith separated from works is dead. He states the same argument five times. Then he illustrates it five times. We are going to try to unpack all of those five illustrations. Okay, buckle up. Here we go. All right, illustration number one, the believer who is in need. All right, let's read again. Chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? What? Can that faith save him from a useless life and a merciless judgment? Can that faith save him? The answer is no, it can't. Illustration number one, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled. Yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, since it's by itself. A little sarcasm here from James. He says, someone comes in your midst. They're poor, they're hungry, they're cold, they're tired, and you say, shalom. Okay? Typical Hebrew blessing, shalom. The peace of God, blessing of God be upon you. Find yourself full, right? Find yourself warm. Go on your way, right? That's what he's saying. Very sarcastic. He's saying, what use is that? That's the key word. What use is that? That is a dead faith. Now, dead never means non-existent in any context. It's a dead faith, not a non-existent faith. And he defines what he means by dead for us with the same use of one word twice. Verse 14, what use is it? The end of verse 16, what use is that? That is a dead faith is a useless faith or a faith that is of no benefit practically to anyone else. That's illustration number one. The person or brother or sister in Christ who's in need and you do nothing for them, that is a useless or dead faith. Illustration number two, the argumentative fool. All right, chapter two, verse 18, let's read. And remember, you can... Right now, if you want to push back, you don't like what I'm saying, or you have a question, I'm moving too fast, we'll have Q&A afterwards, I'll post all this stuff. You could email me. I really want to be as clear as I can, but also move through in a reasonable amount of time. Okay, chapter 2, verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? These are three of the absolute most difficult verses to interpret in the entire Bible, let alone James. So I would say to you, don't build your theology on these three verses. They are so incredibly difficult. Work back from more clear passages. The other thing to remember is you don't have to understand all the details of this section to understand the argument of this whole paragraph here. The argument is very clear. Faith and works are inseparable for salvation from a useless life and a merciless judgment for the eternally secure Christian. That's the argument. This is consistent with that argument. A couple things to remember as we go through this, and I will do my best. Like I said, highly debated passage. It is in the form of diatribe, a really common form of rhetorical device where the author would create a hypothetical objection to his own argument. Uh, might be a real argument that he'd he'd heard when he's out on the road or, you know, preaching in another church, maybe one that he just makes up, but normally he'll put an argument in this objector's mouth that is really stupid and then crush it, okay? That's how the, the rhetorical form works. This is diatribe. James is creating a hypothetical objection to his argument. Second thing to keep in mind is punctuation was not inspired, This is really important. One of the reasons there's a lot of confusion in this passage is because where does the quote begin and where does it end? Very quickly, an illustration. This is what's called an uncial script. Uncial means it's all capital letters. These are all Greek capital letters. When James wrote, he would have written in a script very similar to this. Notice, all capital letters, no periods, question marks, commas, semicolons. There's not even space between the words. Right? You get to halfway through a word and you run out of space? Well, you just start on the next line. I mean, my, my son gets marked off for that in fifth grade. But that wasn't part of the deal back then. Okay? So the quotation marks were not put in by James. So let me give you a few options. Where might they go? NIV has it here. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Period. End of quote. That's NIV. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Period. End of quote. That's New American Standard. You do well. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. That is the Brian Gregory Fisher Standard translation. (laughs) Okay, And let me tell you why I think it ends here and not before. Because in verse 20 is where he turns back to the objector. Now. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Okay, but someone may well say, "But are you willing to recognize?" Best way I can explain this is let me just uh, paraphrase it for you. This is what I think is going on. But someone, an objector, contradicting James. What's James' point? Faith and works cannot be separated. So, what's the objector saying? They can be separated. James saying, "No, no, no, they can't be separated." and you still be saved from a useless life and a merciless judgment. The objector is saying, at the very least, faith and works can be separated. Okay, so, the objector may well say, you have faith, that is faith only, without the works. And I have faith and works. Okay? He's not saying, no one, no one is being accused of atheism. Right? If the person who has works has faith and works. Okay, so again, the objector may well say, and the objector is just standing out there and he's making an argument. Okay, he's making a statement. You over there. He says, you have faith. You have only faith, no works. I have faith, and I have faith in works. I've got them both. You go ahead and show me your faith without the works. Then I'll show you my faith by my works. That is, faith can be demonstrated with or without works. Okay, he's just making a statement of his proposition. Faith can be demonstrated with works, without works. Therefore, faith and works can be separated. Let me illustrate now. He's going to illustrate. Verse 19. You, James, believe that God is one. You hear the phrase God is one, you think Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. In other words, you are orthodox, James. You have orthodox faith. And you do well. If you look in James chapter 2, that is a phrase that means you do good works. In other words, James, you're orthodox in your faith. And you do good works. Same phrase used in Matthew 5, 44, 12, 12, Luke 6, 27, Acts 10, 33. It means you are doing good works. You have faith, James, and you're doing good works. The demons also believe. Do the demons believe that God is one? They probably have deeper insight into that than we do. They're orthodox. They could quote Deuteronomy chapter 6, but they don't do any good works. They just shudder. Remember, this is the argument of the objector. He has made his point. right? Faith and works can be separated. James has just put an absolutely ridiculous argument into the mouth of the objector. Let's look at the demons. See, they believe and they just shudder. They don't do good works. That's ridiculous. So James comes back and says, are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow? You have missed my point. Faith without works is useless. It's of no practical value. Now notice again this phrase. The demons also believe and they shudder. I have heard so many times people build their theology of salvation on this phrase. You don't have real faith. You don't have any faith if you don't do good works. If you don't do good works, therefore you are not a Christian. You are not going to heaven. Why? Because the demons also believe and shudder. But if where I put the quotes is correct, this is the objector's argument, which James says is foolish. Don't build your theology based on this phrase. That's like building all of your theology based upon what Job's counselors say, right? (laughs) A little sketchy. James says this is a ridiculous argument. James' point, again, the big idea, faith and works cannot be separated and you still have a useful life. And pass, in a sense, at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, Again, understanding the details of this, agreeing on the details of this, is not most critical. Understanding this next illustration really is the, the heart of the matter. This is the most important one to understand. So, let's read. This is the, the section that really messed up Martin Luther. James 2 and verse uh, 21 Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What's going on here? Remember our big idea. This is the proposition. Faith and works are inseparable for salvation from a useless life and a merciless judgment for the eternally secure Christian. Now, let's deal with this illustration in particular. Remember the chronology of Abraham's life. Genesis chapter 12. God goes and grabs him out of Mesopotamia. Uh, He he grabs him and he says, I want to give you some promises, Abraham. I'm going to promise you a land, a seed, and a blessing. Come on, follow me. Abraham leaves. He doesn't perfectly obey. He takes his family with him. doesn't get all the way there to the promised land. He stops and his father dies. He's still got his nephew. It's going to give him problems later because stupid decisions have bad consequences, right? But there he is. That's Genesis 12. He moves into the land. In Genesis chapter 15, he has a vision. He encounters God. And there's, there's uh, sacrifices that are set up. God says, I want you to put animals. Cut them down the middle. Put them on either side. And then God puts Abraham to sleep. And a flaming torch, an epiphany, a symbol of God's glory, passes between these, and God makes a covenant with him. He reiterates the promises, and he says to Abraham, because you have believed, I declare you righteous. That was the event of faith. Abraham believed, and he was declared righteous. Genesis 15, verse 6 All of Paul's theology of justification by faith alone is built on Genesis 15, verse 6. I'm going to make a remarkable observation here. Hang on. Genesis 22 happens after Genesis 15. Stunning, right? I saw that all by myself. I didn't even read that in a commentary. Genesis 15 and then Genesis 22, okay? James is basing his argument on Genesis 22. Abraham believes God, he is credited as righteous, it's a moment in time, it's an event of faith. He is in right relationship with God, and God has been building and growing and stretching his faith. Sometimes Abraham fails, tries to give away his wife twice, <laughs> Not, you know, just bad for a lot of reasons that we can't get into this morning. But that's not good, but he's growing, he's stretching, right? God makes him a promise. No, even Sarah is going to have a child, even though she's 90 years old. Sarah laughs, she, uh, I don't know about that. But somehow they struggle and they believe and God gives them a son Isaac. All the promises rest on Isaac and then God says, 20 years probably after Genesis 15, 20 years later, take your son, maybe a teenager now, and kill him. Is his faith that mature? I cannot even contemplate that request from God. But what does Abraham do? He gets up early in the morning. He marches to the top of a mountain. His son gathers the wood. He ties him up. He lays him on top. He pulls out his knife and God says, stop. You pass the test. God has tested Abraham's faith. And Abraham's faith has become mature. It is perfected. Read with me again. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That's Genesis chapter 22. You see that faith was working with his works And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Where did we see the word perfected before? Chapter 1, verse 4. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is, his faith was brought to maturity. Verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 23 is a quotation of Genesis 15, verse 6. So notice what he says. The scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That is, his faith, which began in Genesis 15, was brought to maturity by Genesis chapter 22. And what was the result? He was called the friend of God. By whom? God called him his friend? Well, maybe, probably. What James is saying is people called Abraham the friend of God. Jews all look back to Abraham. They say, Abraham, he's our forefather. He's where it all started. He is the example of what it really means to trust God. Christians point back to Abraham. He's the root of the tree and we're grafted in. That's what it looks like to trust in God. Muslims look back to Abraham and they say, that's a friend of God. Billions and billions of people who've lived on the earth have said, that's what it means to trust in God. He was validated in his faith before men who saw this incredible act of trust in God. Maybe the greatest act of trust in God ever in human history. So, James goes on to say, The scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God. His justification was brought to maturity and sanctification. He became and was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What does it mean to be justified? This is really the heart of the matter. It just means that someone declares someone or something to be in the right. The Pharisees justified themselves before God. They said, we're in the right. We're righteous. We're in the right. Sometimes people justify God. They declare God is in the right. Sometimes God declares people to be in the right. That's Paul's theology. He declares us to be in the right by faith not by works. That's all of Paul's theology. Genesis chapter 15, Romans 4, Galatians. But sometimes people declare one another to be in the right. Well done, Tim. I declare you led worship right this morning. You're justified. You're declared right. That's what James is saying. Abraham was called the friend of God. He was justified in the sight of all of the watching world, all of his family. He came home, Tell us about the sacrifice, Abraham. Wow, man, what a day. You would not believe what we just went through. And God came through again. And he is called the friend of God. In other words, James is saying there are two justifications. The first is to be declared righteous by faith alone. Don't add works to that. Don't add works to that, or you mess up the gospel completely. You miss the point of the gospel. We're declared righteous in the sight of God by faith, by faith alone, nothing added. It is the work of God and we receive it. Thank you, God. That's it. There is a second justification where we are declared righteous by faith and works. Don't take works away from that. Read with me again. You see that a man is justified by faith and works, not by faith alone. In other words, there's not only A faith justification, there's also also a faith and works justification. Those are two different justifications. James and Paul were not in disagreement. Read Acts chapter 15. They were in complete agreement with one another. They didn't fight over this issue because they were talking about two different aspects of justification. Don't read Paul back into James. Two more illustrations, I will fly through them and then I'll let you go, okay? Okay. Abraham, we would expect to see him as an illustration. But then up pops Rahab, the harlot. It's a nice word. She's a hooker. She's a prostitute. Wait a second, Jane. okay. Okay. I wouldn't look back at her life and say, man, that's an example of righteous faith, whatever. But here she is. What's his point? Verse 25. In the same way. Wow, you're going to compare Rahab to Abraham? Okay. In the same way. Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? She was a a harlot in Jericho. She hears about Yahweh. And she believes in the Lord. She believes so much that she's willing to risk her life from the people in the city. They might kill her if they find out she welcomed the spies. But she welcomes the spies and says, save me. When God comes, save me. Not from the penalty of my sins. Save me from your invading army. Save me from my own people. Rescue me. And what happens? Rahab saved herself. She saved her entire family. She rescued them from death. Her faith was expressed through her works. And consequently, Rahab earned for herself a really great reputation. Okay, a reputation that overwhelms her, her previous life, doesn't it? Because some Israelite met her. I'm guessing it was one of the spies maybe and said, wow, this is an amazing woman of faith. Despite her past, she she believes. And he married her and brought her into the Israelite family. And where does she show up again in the New Testament? In the lineage of Jesus Christ. I love that. That's grace. Wow. Final illustration. A dead body. A dead body. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. What's the big idea? Faith and works are inseparable for salvation from a useless life and a merciless judgment for the eternally secure Christian. Here's his analogy. The body is faith. Okay? The body is faith. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. The spirit is the works. The body is faith, the spirit is works. If you walk up and you see a dead body, what do you say to yourself? there's a dead body here. The spirit is gone. This body is not useful any longer to its original inhabitant. It's not functioning. You don't walk up on a dead body and say, there's no body here. There's no body. There never was a body and there is no body. In other words, James isn't saying, faith is non-existent. He's saying faith is dead. It's useless. It's lifeless. It's inactive. When we believe in Jesus Christ and we're given eternal life, it's a free gift. The normal response to that is gratitude, thankfulness, and change. And when we don't begin to grow, something's abnormal, something's not right. Imagine walking up on a family and they're holding a little baby and you you say, wow, that's a really beautiful baby. You can say that because all babies look the same. You go, what a beautiful baby, right? It's true, you know, sort of, well, that's a beautiful baby normal question how old is your baby and imagine if they're holding their baby their beautiful baby and they go he's 12. You know if you read James 3 and applied it last week you'll say nothing <laughs> right <laughs> got the tongue under control pull the bridle in oh 12 right <laughs> but if you didn't apply James 3 last week you didn't do the assignment then you're gonna have a little bit of trouble and you go wow something's wrong with your baby Seriously, seriously, wrong. Hey, what, what in the world? 12 years old? That baby has a physical problem. Or that baby's not getting nourishment. Or there's some environmental factors that are stunting the growth of that baby. You wouldn't look at the baby in their arms and say, there's no baby there. <laughs> Would you? Do you see the absurdity of that? James isn't saying a dead faith is a non-existent faith. He's not saying an immature faith is a non-existent faith. He's saying it hasn't grown like it should. When Paul writes to the Corinthian believers, he says to them not, you're not a church, you're not Christians. He doesn't say that. What does he say? You are babies in Christ. You are in Christ and you are really immature. Can we get busy? Writer of the Hebrews writes and he says, I would love to give you solid food, but I'm going to put you back on the bottle. Why? Because you are so incredibly immature. By this point in time, you should be 12. You should be 25. You should be teaching others, and instead, I'm having to give you milk. Grow up. Grow up. That's what James is talking about. Are there such people who think that they're Christians and they're not? They've been so exposed to Christianity, but they don't understand the gospel and they've never believed. Maybe they're trusting in their good works. They're trusting they're a little better than the other person. Are there such people? Absolutely. And in the Bible Belt, we run into them all the time. My point is this James simply isn't talking about those people. He's talking to you, he's talking to me. He's talking to genuine Christians who need to grow in their faith. Why? Because we will be held accountable. How do we treat the orphan and the widow? How do we treat the poor who genuinely has needs? How do we respond to the rich and the poor? Do we show favorites? How do we deal with our tongue? Do we build up or not? Well, we will be evaluated someday on those bases. Okay, two application points, and then I'll wrap it up. First, we have perfect assurance. Man, enjoy that. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can walk out of here and say, I know I have eternal life because Jesus died for me. Not because I deserve it, not because I'm faithful, not because I'm growing enough, but because God is faithful to his word, and he gave me Christ. That is assurance of salvation. Enjoy that. That's security. And people grow when they are secure. Second, we have great responsibility. And these two are not in conflict with one another. We are accountable before God as Christians for the way that we live our lives. So, James says, listen to the word. Because it can save your soul. It can put your life on a right path and cause you to be a blessing to others and honoring to me. Live well. Live well. Now, a lot of material really fast. If you're not exhausted and worn out, you want to talk more, please come after the 11 o'clock service back there in the Fireside. You can uh, shoot me a question here. I'll have three by five cards. And as I said, uh, granola and water. Or you can run out and grab a lunch. I'd love to have you, have you join me afterwards. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that we would understand your word. And that we wouldn't just understand, but we would apply. And we would live. People would look at our lives and they would say, okay, that's a friend of God. That's someone who really genuinely trusts God, even when tested and tried and tempted. And Father, may our lives be an example to all in this community, our friends and family, those who are close. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless. Have a great afternoon.